0: Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back everyone to yet another episode of DC Power Hour and we're ready to jump in here and talk about another important subject the decline of quality installations in the standby power industry and who better to get things going for us than our battery blarney duo of George and Allen good morning gentlemen good
1: morning good morning, David.
0: All right. What do you, what do you guys have to say about this one? I know it's a, it's a hot topic for you guys. And we've got a great guest that has been on the show before that we're, we're lucky to have back here uh, again. So let's dive right in. George, kick it off. Tell us what we need to know about this one.
1: Oh, this, this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart in part because, uh, since the vast part of my service career and a lot of Alan's service career in the Royal Air Force, we were involved in doing installation work. Alan, I know, installed many uh, audio systems within uh, air traffic control towers all around the world. And uh, we had very, very strict standards of installation quality in respect of uh, how cables were fastened, terminations, all the rest of it. Mine was on um, getting uh, cipher equipment installed at the NATO communications centre in the UK. So uh, although I had civilians actually doing the installation, my job was to uh, ensure that everything was correct because I was going to be the person that ran the department afterwards. So it, it, then after that, we have been involved between the two of us in installation work for almost all our career at various times, either doing it or uh, being responsible for it. And the one thing I have seen over the years is a steady decline in uh, what people are being taught in some ways. Basically, as, as we have, there's nobody actually doing any full training, or very few people are ever getting trained as such to do installation work. They learn it on the job. And as the various uh, engineers have retired, of our generation have retired, and there's nobody there actually showing people how to do it the correct way. And part of this, you know, I, I'm not going to blame the actual technicians that are doing the work. A lot of this is due to the fact is this continual pressure to get the job done. It's got to get finished. We have, we've given you two days to do this, but nobody ever went and looked at the site to discover what had to be done. That's probably the biggest problem we have. People, the salespeople, the operations people quote, and put timelines onto a job without ever going to the site and just seeing what was involved in it. So it's uh, an installation. When I'm talking about installation, I'm talking about all aspects of it, from how do we get the stuff into the building, how do we install it, how is it mounted, how is it wired, and does it comply with all the, the various codes that apply? But I think that's enough to set the scene. So what have you got to say about it, Alan? Oh, lots, George, you know, uh, we're going to be
2: talking about the decline and fall of the, uh, not the Roman Empire, but the uh, uh, backup power systems installation empire. I've been involved with this, oh, more years than I can remember, but uh, heavily involved in the early 1980s. I come from a far standby power systems are concerned. I come from a, a telco background, telephone background, and there were certainly set standards. Set written by uh Bell Corp Bell Communications Research uh, for the Bell system AT&T Western Electric you name it and uh they were very exacting and very very good and it worked uh, along came 1983 and this was the start of the decline in my in my opinion judge green decided that bell the bell companies had a monopoly so he decided to break it up and uh, various baby bells were born and luckily they kept the same installation standards but a couple of other things were happening at the same time UPS's information technology was developing and large mainframe computers were moving out of the uh, uh, controlled environments of computer room and moving out into the uh, various office buildings, what have you and also uh, Some other things were happening in parallel with this. And there was no set, no written installation standards, as far as I know, uh, for the installation of battery backup systems uh, for the IT industry, nor was there for the other telecommunications carriers that were, that were springing up, like uh, MCI and WorldCom and people like that. So to me, that was the the start of the decline and which I'll talk a little bit more about. uh, as we go into this uh, conversation,
1: yeah, it, you're you're probably right, Alan. Uh, that was the description of a lot of a lot of things. I think the big problem is at the present moment we don't actually have any. Although there, uh, you know, we we know that 1657, the uh, I document on battery technicians, does cover some of the installation parts, but I know of no real. Installation document that uh, that is a training document for people at all aspects of it, including, as you said, the telecommunications side. My worst nightmare is always that uh, every time I, I lift a panel on a raised floor and find all these wires lying in heaps across the floor, you start to wonder just what happens if somebody wants to try and find and trace a cable, because when you actually look at the ends of the cable, often and I'm talking about communications and DC cables. When you look at the ends of them, there aren't any markings on them to tell you what it is. Well, know? George, you know that's. That,
2: that, I'm glad you mentioned that because, back in the day, as we say with the uh, Belcor, uh installation requirements, there was a document called uh, GR, which is generic requirement, uh, 1275, and the uh, title of that document was the Central Office Environment installation slash removal of equipment, a uh, generic requirement. And that specifically told you basically how you did everything, including uh, labeling of cables, uh, termination of cables. Remember those uh, fiber tags, George, that we used to tie on the cables? That's mm-hmm. what that was for. Also, uh, it told you how to ride the cables. And more importantly, tire-ups were they were, they were coming into vogue there, but they, they were not permitted to, in a telecom installation. Uh, you had to lace the cables, uh, cable, cable stitching, we call them. And that was for a specific reason. So some people today don't understand it. Uh, although there's very few people left that have that skill, but, uh, it was so that, uh, for two reasons. One was that it kept the cables bundled together. I'm talking about the power cables here. Positive, negative DC kept them bundled together so that if there was a short or something like that, a cable just wouldn't jump, jump off the cable tray or break the tie wrap and jump off the cable tray. There was another reason and that was to prevent the unauthorized installation of additional cables because it was really easy to spot if somebody ran another cable that wasn't stitched into the cable form. So there was, there was a lot of reason for everything. My big bugbear at the moment is, I I look at, I don't see as many installations as I used to, but uh, I could look at any installation, I can guarantee you I can find some fault. You see these photographs posted on uh, LinkedIn, or various media like that, and people showing their battery change out, and they send beautiful pictures, and I just look at the pictures and say, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. So, uh why is it wrong? Because the poor installers don't know any better. The same guy that's installing the UPS may be installing the batteries. Uh, you know, that there's a problem just to start with. I remember it's George, you said in a previous podcast, I forget what it was about, but uh uh he we was talking about training. You know, you got one thing training somebody, but you gotta tell them why they're doing it. And uh this
1: is, now you're hitting a subject I love dearly. But, okay, um, that's a good leadoff. You can take it from your church. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the why. That's probably one of the biggest challenges I think we face at the present moment uh, with all forms of training is that uh, a lot of the times people are being told how to do it, but they're not being told why they're doing it and the reason. And you, you, the whole idea of lacing is something that uh, is a better example. If you, even the people that know how to lace, and there are still a few around. Uh, we actually have a couple in our service team. Uh, that know how to do it, and um, they uh, they'll, they'll say to you, "Well, yeah, I know how to do it, but I don't want to do Why do we need to do it?" Well, one of the reasons was exactly what Alan said: if you um, tie wraps, for no matter how good they are and what the quality is, that they age, and they become brittle. And if you do have a short on something like a 500 MCM cable. Guess what? That cable is going to jump and it will break all the tie wraps along the length of it and start flying around and do other damage. Whereas if it's laced in place and individually laced in place, then it won't happen. Because I one of the things I've noticed now is that, you know, I've used tie wraps. Don't get me wrong. I've used, the you know, based on the fact that we couldn't, uh, you know, there was a time to do the job and we were going to tie wrap them. But I would always tie up individual cables to the cable ladder. But what I'm seeing more and more is very, very long cable ladder cable ties, and they tie them tie them round all of them at one time down to the cable. And some of them are not even tied down to the uh, cable tree. And the the other one, this is going to get me into a lot of trouble. I firmly accept that one of the biggest problems we have is that a lot of the installation of DC systems is now being left to electrical contractors. And they have absolutely no experience in what is required to actually install and wire a DC system. I've actually seen a job where there were two very large four-inch pipes leaving the battery room, and they had all the positives in one and all the negatives in another. You simply, uh, is just a disaster, and they were very upset when I insisted that they changed it. It was, we're, we're, what does it matter? Well, it matters a lot because the magnetic forces under a short-circuit condition are phenomenal. Those pipes would have been bent and everything would have been going in all sorts of directions and could have killed people. Uh, and that's, that is one of the, the challenges we have. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the way the electricians install the electrical cables in accordance with the National Electric Code. Now, that's what they do. They're doing a very good job with that. But they don't understand the intricacies of DC systems. Or even, uh, I, I know I, I trained a class a number of years ago, and I had both the electricians and the guys from the comm side in the same class. And one of the jobs I gave them was to calculate the size of a cable from a control room and a utility out to one of the devices, and the difference was amazing. The, the, the communications guys understood to do the calculation and calculate the voltage drop and everything else. The electricians just upped it for the next size cable up, and that was it. And that, that's the way they would have done it. Like you're saying, George,
2: there's a reason for everything. Uh, one of my things I learned early early on in in, in my career was. Uh, the reasons to do things. As you probably know, I, I was very hot on on grounding at one time. As you know, George, we did a lot of surveys and cell sites and everything else. Every one of them, I thought, found a problem with the grinding. In a large central office, they had a specific method of grinding, and it was called Panny. And I'm sure Pete, when we bring him on, knows what Panny means. But, but, but I won't embarrass him by asking him in case he doesn't. So, but Panny was a, Method of grinding where you had, I'm trying to remember what a acronym stands for, uh, noise producers, absorbers, non-isolated grounds, and isolated grounds. And they were all connected to a ground bar in a certain fashion. And that was to keep noise out of the system. Worked very, very well. I doubt if I've seen one installation recently that's used a panty ground bar, or the grounds are being run properly. The biggest offender I see at the moment is they don't understand that the ground on a Cable ladder has to be run underneath the cable ladder. I've, I've seen them taking it run through a, a cable ladder. You know, that's just a, just a big choke on the, on the fault current there. But, uh, the, the other thing I want to introduce before we bring in our special guest is, and I know he's got a lot of experience in this, is, uh, the utility industry. You know, we talked about telecom, we talked about the utility industry. Well, I learned early on in my career that uh, there was an article 90, I forget what the 92.2 or something like that in the National Electric Code, which basically says that the utility industries, regulated utilities were exempt from the National Electric Code. So, uh, there was a problem straight away. And, you know, the thinking behind that was from the folks at the, uh, NFPA was that these guys knew what they were doing. So they just said, let them go to it. So every utility installation I've looked at, battery systems was kind of different. And they're trying to, starting to pay for it now because, uh, with, uh, NERC and FERC and NERC looking at things very closely and with PRC 005 and, uh, some other regulations, which are saying, well, you should really have some redundancy. In your installation. Well, those early installations had one charger and one battery. And often the battery was uh, installed, not installed properly. But, uh, thank goodness they're coming. People are getting their senses now. So, but back to what I opened with, there was, uh, Belcour 1275. Uh, there's an IEEE document, which we all know and we're all involved with, uh, 1657. Uh, which is a recommended practice for personnel qualifications uh, for installation and maintenance of stationary batteries. Outside of those two documents, other than some of the uh European documents, I IEC documents, I don't know of any document that tells you how to install a battery backup system in a computer room or in a utility, whether it's uh, switch yards or whether it's in a... Uh, any part of that whole system. So we're saying we're complaining that things are not being done properly, but show me the beef. You know, where are the documents that tell you how to do it properly? So with that, George, uh, I'd like to bring in our, our special guest today, Pete DeMar, an old friend of mine. He, he'll probably shoot that, but, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, he is an old friend of mine. Very, very nice person. I'm uh, Pete DeMar, and Pete, uh, for the benefit of our listening audience, maybe you can just give us a brief. Uh, when I say a brief, I'll give you a minute, uh, <laughs> to, to describe your, uh, your illustrious career.
3: Well, I'm Pete DeMar, battery research and testing. Uh, like Alan and George, you can tell by our looking at us, our age. Uh, we've all been in the industry probably 40 years. My primary experience has been it's, well it's always been stationary and majority of it's with utilities, but we do quite a bit of telecom and military work around the world. We're strictly a stationary battery service company. We just we've never worked or represented any manufacturers. And so we get we get to do things a little different and both George and Alan. I hit it on the head that that a number many numbers years ago, there used to be quite high standards of quality requirements, I should say. And as they both also indicated, times have changed. Economics has driven the change. Um, everybody wants it for the absolute lowest dollar to accomplish a task. And as they mentioned, there's been many sites where Uh, installers have gone out to sites and said, oh, nobody told us we had to use a hand winch to get the batteries to the roof. And that's just, and that's it. and
2: That's enough background. So, Peter, what do you think about uh, what we've talked about so far? Any comments? I I know you've been listening in there.
3: Yes, I have. No disagreements. There are just one thing after another you'll find it in sight, and it's It's good to hear people talk about lacing because that's the only method we use. But I also must admit, there's times when we have had to use cable ties. When you're up in cable racks crawling around on the cable tray, you really don't want to be kneeling on the end of a cable tie. And as George mentioned, they do decay over time. I do not know of any lacing cord that has ever decayed over time. We also, with lugging, as you mentioned, it's critically important to label the ends of the cable. It's one thing if you're working on a little system where you see the battery and the charger within a few feet and trace the cable. It's another when there's multiple cables going different places. And how do you find out which is which? Those fiber tags, you know, we use them by the thousands. I wish they were cheaper. They're not. I also agree that very often electrical contractors are doing big installations, and though they try to do a good job, very often they don't. And as we've probably all seen, there's been cases where installers have used what's called a non approved cable lubricant to slide the cells down rails. There's only one approved lubricant. For sliding cables that I know of, that's that Dow Corning, I forget the number, that every manufacturer now will allow to use. And as you know, if you're trying to slide a five or 800-pound cell down a length of cable, it makes it a lot easier if you can reduce the friction. I guess I got off subject. But I think you meant cable rack.
2: Peter. Yes, I did. I did mean cable. Uh, but uh, th- that brings up something else that I've seen recently. Is that when batteries are installed on, we'll get, we'll get into cabinets in a minute, but when batteries are installed on, on racks, open frame racks, there's a method of that as well. And doing things, uh, particularly the, uh, spacing between the batteries, whether it's a earthquake zone requirement or not will determine the type of battery rack. Uh, but what I find happening is that. There's those interconnecting cables or in some cases, bus bars. Are they sized properly? Are they torqued properly? People think now because of the, uh, thin copper posts on some batteries that you don't need to take certain precautions like, uh, clean the battery posts. I'm sure people talk about that, but, uh, but not only that, but torquing the, uh, connectors and retorquing. There's a reason for everything when you're torquing a battery cable. You just don't put the torque wrench on and see it click. You know, you have to back it off first when you're retorquing and then mm. torque again. But the biggest uh, problem I see is the, the takeoff, positive, and negative takeoffs, uh, where those cables, a lot of times very substantial cables, 750 MCM or DLO cables, large DLO cables. Uh, they're taken off the determination plate put on the positive negative end of the battery. And those cables are usually connected to it, should be connected to it with a two hole lug. A lot of times they're connected with just a single hole lug. Not only that, those cables are not supported. The same happens with intertier cables. You know, they're take from, go from the top to the bottom. And there's a, people may not realize, but there's a bending radius. For every type of cable, every size of cable, that's often violated but uh you know the battery old battery posts positive and negative termination posts are under a lot of strain because there's no strain relief on those interconnecting cables, so that's just one example of the of battery installation where it has declined, I think. So, I don't know if George wants to comment on that. Or
1: oh, I'll did. comment on that one well enough. And because it's something I have discovered just recently is that whereas when you and I were doing the majority of our installations, we were, um, the battery rack came with the takeoff plates and all the cables to the mounting was on the rack ability to, to mount them on. And uh, you just, you had a, a cable over to from the, the posts over to the, uh, Take off, and then you could land the uh, 500s or whatever large cables you were installing. Apparently, what's happened today is that all the battery rack manufacturers, in order to uh, be more competitive, those takeoff plates and anything else that's added to it are all extras and they have to be ordered separately. They're no longer part of the kit you got when you bought the battery. The trouble is that we also now have a lot of people selling batteries and such like and selling racks that don't know anything about that because they've never installed it. So the battery racks themselves have been shipped and installed without it, so they could install in the field, and they're um sitting there going, well, I've got no takeoff plate, so I've just got to land this uh, these two 500s onto the end of this log. But the other area that I is, I think is is a major thing from a safety point of view, and and uh, a performance point of view, is the fact is as we said about not marking cables is one thing, but also uh, a failure to understand the noise, the electrical noise that is present in systems, particularly in the utilities. Uh, now the, the telecom systems are slightly different in the sense that the, uh, the telecom chargers, uh, believe it or not, are still manufactured to an old CCITT standard that limited the audible noise within it because they didn't want hum on the old fashioned analog telephone system. So there was a very, very strict noise limitation on that. And having run an engineering department that we built telecom chargers, I understand the challenges of achieving that sometime. And believe it or not, that is still part of the standard for a telecom rectifier, that CCITT noise one. So when you're working with that and we are working, for instance, on battery monitoring for a system, you're great because there is no noise there. It, then you'll get very accurate readings. You get into the data center market. You get into the utility side. Uh, there, is not, there is that level of filtering on the chargers. And they're very seldom are they ever uh, trying to run the cables in such a way that minimise the noise pickup. The number of times I have seen power cables and, and signal cables all piled on top of each other within a cable tray, whereas the power should be on one side of the cable tray and the signals on the other at least provide some physical separation to it. But I'll be interested to know what Pete's got to say about that because he's also been involved in the battery monitoring side in a big way.
3: And one thing I wanted to comment on, George, was what we, it, what you said about the utility industry and the older chargers not being filtered, etc., was tremendously right on the money. But over the last twenty years, as more and more remote monitoring and control is going on. All the chargers we see going in now are basically battery eliminators. And as you said, there used to be like one battery and one charger. Well, now that's going in with redundancy. And that, I believe, is because now there's more remote control and they have to have much more accurate communication between the sites and their central knock or wherever. So that industry is changing, and uh, the chargers have been a big part of that. I mean, (laughs) the old chargers were just, there was no, your battery was your filter, for all intents and purposes.
2: You're right, Peter, and uh, the utility industry is, God bless them, but we've got a lot of friends there, but uh, they're they're reluctant to change, very, very slow to change, and uh, go around someplace, and you see there's all my GAMP chargers and a lot of, the uh, majority of them are probably, not many Ferro's, but they, they're starting to change over to, the utility industry never liked fan-cooled chargers. And that's why they never adopted the switch mode rectifiers that were fan-cooled. But now you see uh them starting to adopt switch mode rectifiers that are convection-cooled. And I don't really blame them, but, uh, what an easy way to build in redundancy. Yes. and Also, also re- reduce the noise. One thing I was thinking about when George was talking there is that, you know, they, we have three industries, basically telecom industry, 48 volt DC primarily, some 24 volt, but they, they grind the battery. They grind the positive end of the battery. And there's a reason for doing this, like everything else. But they found out in the early days that if you run at the positive end, you reduce the galvanic action on the battery, and uh you cut back this uh buildup of uh crud on the battery terminals. Just like, look at your car battery. You've got a, a lot of nasty green stuff on the positive terminal. But anyway, that's beside the point. A long-term, well, not a long-term, the utility industry decided that They didn't want to ground their batteries at all. And then along came the UPS folks and they, well, they wanted bigger batteries, 40 volt, 960 volt batteries, skirting some of the uh, requirements of the National Electric Code. But uh, they, they went about things in different ways. Some of them were grounded, some of them weren't. And, you know, it was really hazardous uh, working in some of those old UPSs. So there was no standardization, but, what, what I'd like to, to do is, if we can turn this around to a, a positive direction on some, for, what do we need to do? Uh, I'll take your comments first, Peter. What, what do we need to do to, to improve the quality of installation work?
3: I think that's got to start with the per- well, the engineering and purchasing people, as you realize, to prepare for and perform a battery installation installation. If there is no real quality requirements, you can cut a lot of corners and do projects faster. So if you do it faster with less man hours, you can bid lower. But if there is quality enforcement where somebody actually has a specification and verifies that the batteries are being installed the way they were specified, that the price of the job goes up. But requiring and mandating, or whatever the word is, quality is important if you want things to be better. If you don't, then it's just human nature. Any contractor is going to move just as fast as they can and – to save, to save time and money. I mean, one thing that we often see is batteries that get installed and never get a real initial charge before they're put onto the circuit where their voltage limited. Well, if the battery comes right from the factory, hasn't sat in a warehouse for months, not so bad. But let's say you get a battery that did sat in a warehouse for months, and we've seen them where they sat for a year before they're installed at power plants where they got backed off. Well, you know, they're sulfated and the the sulfate's just not on the edge of the plates. It's on the surface, but, you know, by the, in between them. And the battery may never become a good battery if you don't give it a good, a real good, you know, a good initial charge before it's connected to the system where the voltage is limited. We like to... Do initial charge at 2.4 to 2.5 volts a cell were possible, and but that takes time. That's all I can see right now. Yeah, I,
1: I the thing, Pete. There is you. You've got is dead right. The thing I remember about that side of it is this. Is like you did as well. I did a lot of uh, my previous employer. I did a lot of commissioning of uh, brand new data centers where they actually brought commissioning engineers in. And the whole systems were load tested. And, uh, you, 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 the time you'd finished the, the battery discharge testing, you always had at least a percentage of those batteries that had failed. In some cases, you had many. I, I use a couple of uh, sets of data in one of my trainings for, uh, to demonstrate how all these batteries were failed during the discharge test. But when you actually look at them, they're all in a couple of cabinets. And it's very clear what's happened is, Basically, you add them up, it's two pallets of batteries. Those got dropped someplace in transit and were damaged. But, you know, you don't see that till you do the discharge test. But then what happens is that in three to five years, all those batteries have to be changed because they're UPS batteries. Do they ever do another discharge test? Probably not. You know, there's not time to do that. We can't do that. But hold on. Why is it the first lot of batteries had a whole pile of initial infantile failure? Are the new ones not going to have any of that failure either? So you're just simply putting a battery in that you don't actually know will meet the spec. So you have to do a second discharge test. You almost you should always do a discharge test, but that that comes under the installation practices part of it. Do you agree? I I I agree with wholeheartedly. I can point out a couple of things, George. I went
2: to witness uh, or to, to test, guess, with 300 odd uh, 12-volt units uh, coming off the production line formation tables of a very well-known and reputable battery man, in fact, and uh, found that, I forget the exact number, something like 360, but uh, 13 of them were infant mortality. They didn't pass the initial test. And that was a low test. So comment was made. Well, that's about average. We were, they were pretty, but pretty, pretty pleased that, uh, you know, it's kind of a low percentage, if you will. But the other thing is, is Pete hit on it. We went through the build out of, uh, the first wave of, uh, mobile telephone sites, cell sites. we were never involved with the installation of, of the systems, but we're, As you know, George, we were heavily involved with auditing those sites. Mm -hmm. And uh, in none of them, as far as I know, were the battery properly initialized, given a freshening charge. That's what Pete's talking about. Uh, So we find a lot of bad batteries, as you know. But uh, when I asked the question, well, why why wouldn't these given a freshening charge? Do you think we're going to, say, wait on site for two or three days so we can give the battery a freshening charge? and then come and do another discharge test. You must be joking. So my comment was, well, do you ever think of giving them a freshening charge before you brought them on site? You won't achieve as much, but you'll, you'll achieve something. So th- that was the biggest failure I found with that whole uh, mobile telephone company rollout, and I'm sure the same thing's happening today. Although it's, it's getting, as it's the batteries get smaller, it's getting, a, I guess, a little bit easier. But uh, as I asked the question before, you know, what can we do? And Pete hit the nail on the head when he says, well, you know, you, 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 you got to write specifications. you got to write methods of procedure, uh, statements of work. But nobody's doing that. With the previous company, I was tasked with writing a lot of uh, statements of work. And uh, I was also tasked with looking at a lot of statements of work uh that were coming from uh various uh end users. But 50% of them are cut and pasted from from something else. And you've been installing a VRLA battery and the statement of work was for a VLA battery. So things like that. But uh so education's the has to be there somewhere. But financial engineers are running the show. And uh it's like everything else, you know, uh are throwing up houses where I live Apartments, the quality—it's just—it's just not there. A friend of mine's a home improvement guy, and he gets most of his work from correcting the bad workmanship of newly constructed homes. So we're we're in the same boat, you know. Financial engineers won't allow the, the time or the money, so they're getting their systems installed, and then they then they complain about it.
1: The problem we got, Alan, is you've hit the nail on the head. There is never enough time to do the job properly, but there's always enough time to fix it. Yeah. And maybe that's what part of our problem is that the uh, the financial engineering do not understand that part of it. And the other part they definitely don't understand is that the last 10% of any job takes 90% of the time. And it's uh, part of that is going back and redoing things that are wrong, but just getting everything sorted out. Is a large part of it at the very end of the job, and the and the faster you install it, the more time you're going to sense spend doing the fixing. That's well, as the, simple as that. I spoke to a, a kind
2: of a operations manager, I guess he was, uh, for a large telephone network, cellular telephone network, and he said he he kind of agreed with me that the problem was, but he said that the, you know, we we have the installation folks. Uh, and their job is to install the system at the lowest possible price. And here I am on the operations side. You know, they hand it over to me. They've had the pat on the back. a boys, you, you come in under budget. You know, we did it quick and we thought you would do it. Now, operations, you've got to sort it out. So it was thrown over to the other side of the house and they had to deal with the problems. But uh, as yet, I, I don't know how we can do it. You can't. Uh, talk reliability to financial engineers.
0: Hey guys, I have a quick question. So I think it's pretty interesting you guys are bringing up the idea of um, of course you can't really control the financial engineering of it and, and that's a big problem and, and we need more education but what if you increase the the quality of the standards? I know that you all have sat on numerous committees and and created a number of standards yourself. Is the problem that the standards aren't uh, strict enough, or is there no way to enforce them?
1: Yeah, I'll, Enforcing I'll let Peter address yeah, that. Yeah, but Peter, you see you, you that one, Peter. I don't think we need to
3: increase the standards, but we need to follow them. And, I mean, every IEEE standard and all the battery manufacturers, they have some pretty good specific requirements. But it does come down to when you're installing a battery, do you, the contractor, follow it? And the second is, does anybody verify it? I mean, some of my favorite, I'm sure that Alan and George have both seen it. You go into a battery system and you literally can grab the cable and wiggle the lug back and forth. <laughs> that tells you the connection's not good. Nobody either ever properly checked it or something, you know. I, I always remember when I was very young when first I thought, how the heck's this work? Well, it worked because you could hold two pieces of wire together and pass charging current to normal charging current, but you can't do that when a high load is applied to it. I one time investigated a a data site up in White Plains above New York City and uh for an insurance company. They wanted to know why this battery set fire to part of the building and what luckily there was a trail this was a UPS system a number of cells had been changed out and all the numbers of cells are XX when I got there all the batteries were out of the building and I was there like two days later the batteries were out of the building on pallets in the parking lot and what I determined was that where I was able to determine which post started to fire because of the way the post had melted off. And uh, that was one of the batteries that it had been removed to get one placed out. and it was behind a column. And basically it ended up, it was settled out of court, but uh, that the installers, when they put it back together, nobody verified that that connection had been remade. And I'm not sure you called, I'd call that a new installation, even though it was, you know, just one part of it. If they had done their job and used a micrometer or whatever to check the connections, you know, from one cell to the next, they would have found them. You know, all the other connections were good. Where the other cells been replaced, their posts were fine. But when, and that had been on charge for many months, but when it actually went under load, that was too much of a current. The resistance between that connection and the post, and it just melted the post away, right down through to the copper insert. But uh, I, I think the standards are good enough. But somebody needs to enforce it, and it still comes back. to low dollar often will kill a
2: good project. Yeah, uh yeah, you know, David, you, you you brought up a good point there. But we need more standards, or is it saying standards ac- adequate? One of the things that standards do, some of the standards do, is they designate the level of skill levels of the various installers. I know that 1275 did it. You'd uh, installation technicians level one, two, three, and four, I believe it was, and they designated the skill levels of the people that were allowed to do that particular task. The when IEEE came out with 1657. Which is a tremendous document, uh, on, on recommended practice for personnel qualifications. Uh, they did the same thing. I think all three of us were involved with that at one time or another. And, uh, they come up with the various skill levels of, they changed it around a little bit. I think it was zero, one, two, three. And then they had another category, which was, I guess, subject matter expert. But, uh, how many installation companies these days? Follow those or have those skill levels embedded in the system on the various installers. I know Eagle Eye does. I know the people that work for Pete do, but, uh, you know, I don't see, I don't see it being followed throughout the industry. So maybe that's one of the things that, uh, we need to look at is the, uh, training of the various tech, uh, technicians and the various skill levels. So you want to comment on that?
1: I'll comment on that one, Alan, and it's, it comes back to what I said earlier: is that um, the uh, because the people that are now out in the field with the union installers are not have never been trained in that those standards uh, either on the job or formally. They uh, they don't have that knowledge. Even the people supervising don't have that knowledge that we have, and uh, that you know. Uh, if if the company has to think about it, how many of these companies are now being acquired? That we we see, we're again seeing amalgamation of small mom and pop and small professional organisations being acquired to to make uh, you know large corporations that will, will do installation work and that sort of stuff. But they're all coming. The people that are coming into it have all been working to different standards. They some of them very good. Some of them, not very good. And uh, my concern there is that what's going to happen, the ones that are not very good are the ones that will do the job fastest, and that will appeal to the financial engineering, and that, that will be the standard that will become acceptable. But the, one of the biggest problems is is trying to, basically trying to establish a training course to comply with uh, 1657, something I'm... Very close to my heart at the present moment. And but there isn't really anything out there because it it is more of a long-term function. It's not something you can send somebody and do this course in two days. You're talking about a course that if you're going to get to level three, it's going to take you at least five years of on and off, on and off stuff. And one of the one of the big problems was in the very early days of it. Uh, the idea was that people would go to a training center to do that. So they, the a lot of the practical training for well, today, the one thing that I, I know very well from coming out of COVID is that uh, trying to get people to come to a central location is extremely difficult because there isn't that level. Of, there, there aren't enough staff with these companies and the cost of doing it. You know, I'm, I've been playing with the airfield. I'm, I'm doing a five day training next week. And, uh, you know, uh, I just, the one airline just told me that, oh, by the way, we could cancel your flight. So I had to go and change all that yesterday and find another airline that was a lot more expensive. But that was, you know, that's the way it goes. And it, think about it, if that was a bunch of people trying to come to the course. So maybe one of the things that we have to do as part of this, uh trying to get the uh, 1657 training out there is actually also include training for, more senior people, and teach them how to do on-the-job training as part of it. And that okay. will have to be in person. You can't do that online. But maybe that's the one way we can get around it is by basically teaching people within companies to be able to do the on-job training part of it and the supervision. What do you think
3: of that, Pete? I think that's very good. Maybe It's basically called train the trainer. Uh, yes. They use it in the emergency medical profession. And- you know many parts of the world where people that know what they're doing go in and train somebody who has some knowledge you have know, some basic knowledge you give them more advanced knowledge and i I agree with you I mean it training I don't know how it's possible to do a battery installation training in unless you actually haven't doing it in a number of days I mean it's one thing if you've got an installer that's been used to doing installations and now you Teach them some of the more finite or important parts of it, and they learn it now, if you take a somebody right off the street, well, first off, you need to teach them basic safety about working with batteries and I mean, I have to agree with you that it it takes a few years for a person that came in green to go up through, and that's if they're working daily in the field, and it may not be daily doing installations, but working around batteries, inspecting them, load testing. I don't disagree with you. It might be a, a three to a five-year process. but You know what uh, kind of amazes
2: me? You have uh, all these various trades, plumbers, carpenters, electricians, and, and they all have this apprenticeship program, and they all have things you have to know and do. Before you you advance, and to become a a master electrician, or a you know master plumber, whatever, you you have to not only know this stuff but demonstrate that you do know it. Here we have DC power systems installers completely unregulated. Why should that be? You know, it's just as an important job, uh, and it's just as dangerous a job as an electrician. So here you go to a New installation. There's the electricians in there doing all the AC work. And you'll find, maybe with the exception of New York City, but, or Chicago, but you'll find that they're all, you know, the, the people in charge of the jobs are licensed master electrician. And here comes the DC installers putting in a large or a UPS system or a large battery plant, thousands of ampere hours batteries, a couple of thousand amps worth of chargers, and there's no regulation at all. They don't have to really have any qualifications at all. Uh, you mentioned job safety analysis card to them, and and, and you got deer in the headlight look. What's that? So, maybe we should look at it from that perspective as well, of have some form of uh, licensing or qualification work for uh, DC power system installers. What's your thoughts on that, Pete?
3: I've always been very scared of Big Brother trying to uh, force everybody. And I agree with standards. I remember when we were starting out, because we were totally independent, two of the battery manufacturers, we were making inroads into our area. Well, obviously, their thing was talking about, well, they're a little company, they don't have quality, or they don't have enough people. It was interesting where we were. We had more employees in the field than either of those two companies. But I've always, I I know we need quality and we need standards. But I worry about, I don't know, I'm not sure it's the right way to say it. But I worry about somebody putting a requirement on a industry, such as the battery maintenance industry, that would preclude uh new companies from coming in. I mean, I, I definitely remember one manufacturer making a statement that our company would be out of business within, you know, two years. That was 38 years ago, but it, and they were, they made a point to try to keep us out. So I, I don't know, Alan. I don't have a honest, unbiased answer. Okay, so uh, I, I, uh, sorry, Bob.
2: Go ahead. I was just going to, I was going to mention the name of the company. I thought that Told Pete that, but uh, I won't do that. But uh, it's it's made up of two initials, probably. Well, Am I right? I'm I not It's made up of two initials.
3: I'm not commenting. Okay. <laughs> Stop
1: trying to get people in trouble, then, Alan. No, but I I I understand exactly what Pete's saying. It's if you're not careful that uh, yeah the 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 big guys will use that type of certification. But the whole point here is. For a lot of the ones, uh, that level of training wouldn't be available. However, you start a company and brought people in that had already been trained then you and and had a certification attached to it, having done the training, that's a different situation. You know, having having been in small companies for a large part of my uh, career, I totally understand what Pete's saying about the, the big guys want to keep you out. And it takes a lot of hard selling. And in those cases, going in with qualified people was one of the, would be one of the advantages if there were that level of certification out there, uh, of basic training. What do you think of that, Pete? Let me turn
3: my, turn my, I turn my, uh, mic back off. Yeah. Can you hear me now again? Yeah, sure. Okay. I agree with certification of training. I just, I really, I had mixed feelings about. Well, I have no mixed feelings about having quality and being able to prove it. I have a question. If someone has learned and has not have a formal training document, is that the same? I mean, proof that you have the capability of doing X, whatever X is, is very important. But I think that's it. And I think it's about time to wrap up, right?
0: Yep. Yeah, sorry, guys. We're hitting that uh, close to that I'm hour that hour mark. So, um, you know, no, another great conversation. And, uh, my, my thought is maybe we just clone the three of you and get you guys out to every installation. And then I think we'll be, we'll be all set. But George, I know you're doing a lot of work on creating a curriculum around 1657 and the different levels yeah. involved there. And I, I think that's, that's going to go a long way here. So thanks for the great conversation again, guys, uh, Alan, anything, you have to say to to wrap it up, or anyone else
2: no, it's just uh you know we could we could just go on and on talking about this forever i I wish I had a Pete tamar to sell send and supervise every installation we were we were involved with, but uh that's just not going to happen uh but uh you know the you know the quality starts from the top at the top from the top down, uh, so you know it has to be driven. And, uh, it, it's not cheap. Quality is not cheap. Uh, we all know that. Uh, and it, it, if it's, if it's not demanded, if it's not regulated, it's not going to happen. So we're, we're between a rock and a hard place here. I, I think, uh, if a company's smart and they have a installation done, uh, at wherever that, they pay the extra and send somebody in to audit that installation it's like sending in a home inspector fire inspector a insurance adjuster you know to look at look at the work uh that's not going to happen either so uh what do we do we just throw our hands up in the air you no know, I, I i think we the industry we owe it to the industry that's been so good to us at times that we try, from the top, uh, try and drive things, even though we're battering the head up against a brick wall most of the time. But some of it may filter through. So that's my closing comment.
0: All right. That's a good way to wrap it up. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks again for joining us, Pete. Uh, Always a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we can do it again. Okay. Thanks, guys.
1: Thanks, Pete. Bye, everybody.
0: We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.